For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit an exhibit at the Tucson Museum of Art created by the refugee artists of the Owl and Panther Project. I'll talk with scientist Chris Impey about his book Beyond, exploring the past, present, and future of space travel. And Beth Surdit watches the hawks that rule the sky above her Tucson neighborhood. Those stories are here on Arizona Spotlight. People often say that despite its size, Tucson can feel like a small town. A current exhibit at the Tucson Museum of Art makes the case for our city as a global village. The Owl and Panther Project was established in 1995 by the Hopi Foundation. It's an expressive arts program for refugee families relocated to Tucson whose lives have been impacted by trauma, imprisonment, or torture. The goal is to provide sanctuary and a creative space where people of all ages can share art from their homeland or learn new forms of expression. From children to seniors, their work, which includes painting, fabric designs, sculpture, poetry, and more, fills the lower gallery at the Museum of Art. Each element in the exhibit tells personal stories about loss and discovery. My name is March Pellegrino, and I'm the program manager for the Allen Panther Project. Allen Panther works with expressive arts programming because it does help people heal. And the folks that we work with have experienced a really difficult time, and they've been um, chosen for this program because the work that we do allows them to take what's inside and put it out. And and it gives them a respite. Sometimes they say that on, on Tuesday nights, they don't think about the things that are really bothering them. It's, it's a way to separate from the heaviness and to create something new and vibrant and be able to think about their future and moving forward. And so it's really helpful in that way. And we're really grateful to the Tucson Museum of Art for partnering with us. This is our fifth year working with them, with not only art from the folks that we work with now, but we've also invited our alumni to come back, and some of our alumni, folks who were little kids, who are now coming back with their kids, have created for this show as well. So it's really exciting for us. Are these folks bringing art from their homelands and introducing them to the group sometimes? Sometimes that happens, and uh, at our featured artist, Neda, um, is, uh, does sewing, and we're really hoping next semester that she's going to bring a project to everybody else around sewing, where sewing will be part of it. This year we had Burundian weavers come and teach us weaving, and it was amazing how engaged they got, because here were people who also came as refugees who were bringing their art. So it, it is, it's a wonderful way to share culture by sharing art. My name is Mayra Guillén Vargas, and I am from Veracruz, Mexico. I came here when I was three years old. I started out on Panther when I was about maybe about six years old, and I was in it until I was a junior in high school. And what do you remember about that experience? Uh, was it important to you growing up? I think it was the best years of my life. 
Every single volunteer, every single person, everybody made a difference in my life. They made me the woman I am now. What kind of art did you uh, learn to do or did you find that you enjoyed? Writing. It was the best part of it because we could express ourselves through writing. We learned to tell the world what we felt, what we wanted the world to hear from us. Did you end up making friends from distant places in the world? Absolutely. I have friends from Africa, friends from Central America, from Guatemala. They just didn't become my friends, they became my, part of my family. One sculpture in the exhibit is built around the bottom half of a real window. A hand-sculpted cat made of bronze stands on its hind legs with its front paws placed against the glass, as if the cat is looking at something far away. I asked the artist, Leonardo, who was once a political prisoner in Chile, to explain his work. This is a, a cat that represents a cat saying goodbye to a friend who, during the military government in Chile, he was arrested and later disappeared. When we were together in prison, uh, he was taken to a vehicle and he turned his back to look one more time at his home. And nobody was home except his cat was in the window, standing like, like holding the uh, glass. And, and, and he said that image and he took it with him and then he shared with me the image. And later in my life, uh, I was in a meeting in a house and I saw a cat standing more or less like this and I said I had to take a picture of the cat in my head. So I, I keep saying I need to do that drawing, I need to do that drawing. And I said that's it, I'm going to do this cat and see what happens. And that's pretty much the story that's, to make a show. That's a beautiful story though. How does it make you feel to have this work displayed in the museum? Very proud, very uh, accomplished. Uh, I'm very happy that they invite me. All right, so introduce yourself for me. Uh, Mariana Pegno, and I'm the Associate Curator of Education at the Tucson Museum of Art. And I'm Morgan Wells, and I'm Curator of Education at the Tucson Museum of Art. Choose a few words that you think would describe this exhibit. Maybe empowering. I think it's exciting, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's innovative. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the keys to why art is a successful way to help the people that are in the situation that some of these refugees are? So I think art is a great nonverbal way of communication. So it's really accessible and open to multiple people, whether of age or language barriers, so they can find a material they like to work with and tell a story and tell different stories and think about whether it be past, present, or future. I also think it's entertaining, so you know, it's an outlet to have fun and get excited and just to you know, have a good time. I think you give art a chance, right? And we've convinced these kids and part the different participants to give art a chance. And uh, if you come and check it out, there's definitely going to be something for you because there are so many different stories being told in different artistic styles. And maybe that you can see that everybody can be an artist. Yeah. My name is Rasul. I'm 17 years old. I'm from Iraq. and. Um, I've been working with Alan Panther for four years now. It, it taught me a lot of things to, to be an artist, to be a writer, uh, you know, to learn how to write better. What kind of projects have you been working on most recently? What's the latest thing for you? A uh, timeline. A timeline is talking about my life and where I came from and like who I am now and how I changed. Um, what kind of materials do you use to create the timeline? I wrote, you know, I used 
my imagination to write it and then I used art with it between art and writing like that. It was, it was pretty awesome. Um, before you worked with the Owling Panther Club, had you ever done art for yourself? Had you ever created stuff when you were younger? Nah, not that much. Not until I came to Owling Panther. You know, the people like Marge and Mariana, they, they helped me. They made me, you know, change my attitude for art and writing. It was pretty good. I liked it. What do you think uh, you're going to do with this art training that you've received here? Uh, I don't know. Really. I want to like change, like make you know other people to learn about it, this stuff, art. You know, this like this place is awesome. Like for good, you know, people from another countries, it's it's good for them. Talk about life. I was born for a reason in the hot desert in the summer season. Life is like art, and I'm the museum. My art is like my feelings, and everyone can see them. The exhibit, Museum as Sanctuary, Perspectives of Resilience, will be at the Tucson Museum of Art through January. Why do some humans have such a desire to explore the unknown, regardless of the risk? That question provides the starting point for scientist Chris Impey's new book, Beyond. Impey documents where space travel has taken us and where it may lead us. Chris Impey is an award-winning cosmologist, astrobiologist, and astronomy professor at the University of Arizona. At the level of genetics, there's a, there's a DRD4 uh, mutation or variant of a well-identified gene that has been correlated in individuals with risk-taking and, and with some sort of dysfunction like autism and ADHD and so on. And so there's, you know, not enormous amount of research, but some tantalizing research to suggest that there's a genetic component within us uh, that can be identified that is correlated with exploring, you know, beyond the sake of our immediate necessity. And for me, independent of that evidence, the most striking thing is this map that you can easily find on the web of how humans radiated around the planet after leaving Africa 50 or so thousand years ago. And... And I just try and visualize this because if you look at the timelines of traveling across Asia and then down through the Americas, it's phenomenally fast. I mean, it really literally takes a few thousand years to cross the land bridge from Siberia, which there was no water then, and travel all the way down through the Americas, all the way to Patagonia, the wilds of Patagonia. And you couldn't have needed to do that. I mean, that's a, that's a fierce amount of traveling from, by hunter-gatherers. And, you know, and the, the humorous thought there is that in the middle of this journey, they must have gone through what was what is now Santa Monica or Santa Barbara, and they must, why didn't they just stay there? There's a beach, you know. Actually, the climate was a little different then. But why go to these extremes? Why move to the northern realms of Asia right against the ice pack? So humans have gone places on the planet that they didn't need to go, and other animals have not shown any tendency to do this. Um, and, and again, all with no technology, all just nomads. So that, to me, is what speaks to the fact that we want to explore. And that th these are um, unimaginably uh, ambitious journeys to cross an ocean in a boat made of bark and twigs and branches a thousand or a few thousand years ago. That's a, that's a crazy thing to do. How would you say it comes into play in terms of influencing space travel today? And I guess what I'm driving at is for some people, is it an emotional or a, almost a psychological imperative to explore? And sometimes that butts up against 
the economics and the infrastructure necessary to make it happen? I mean, part of what motivates NASA, would you say, is connected to this gene? It could be. I mean, that's a that's a tough comparison just because NASA is a you know, bureaucratic government agency. But yeah, I true. know many of the individuals in NASA, the engineers and the scientists and the people who build rockets, and, and they do have that, you know, even though they're embedded within a bureaucracy of tens of thousands of people and they deal with government regulation and, and it can't be much fun, you get them on the subject of why they have the job they do, despite its many frustrations from day to day, and they'll their eyes will just light up. They'll say, absolutely, I, I want to build a new kind of rocket. I want to make the technology that would let us live on Mars or the moon. I want, you know, they're a piece of a large picture, a very expensive and difficult proposition, but they absolutely light up when you talk about it. So I think they're driven by that. I know people who are in the world of science fiction writing about it, or the kind of people who go to Space Fest. There was a one of the Space Fest was here a year or so ago, and they, they actually had nine of the moonwalkers there, which has never happened. One, that two, many in one two place. are dead, and Neil Armstrong doesn't go out and do that. So that was everyone else, all in one place. And the, the reverence with which they were approached at that meeting as the only people who've stood on another world, you know, 4,000 people, I think, have stood on Mount Everest. That's special, but it's not that special. And yes, yeah, so I think it is emotional. I think it is visceral. It's, an, it's absolutely not shared by everyone. Some of the most uh, animated, agitated uh, debates, arguments have been between friends of mine or colleagues or associates where on one side it's, we've got so many problems on the earth. Why are we spending our time and money doing this? This is such a waste of resources. Mm -hmm. um, and those are tough arguments. And my, not to completely rebut that argument because I couldn't, but my argument is just a contextual one that, uh, you know, it's a fraction of a cent of your tax dollar that goes to NASA and all the things it does, whether you like them or don't like them. Uh, and I think the private sector is going to bear the brunt of this, and those people will spend their money as they've earned it on whatever they want to do, whether it's Richard Branson or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. So the people who are motivated to do this are going to do this, and I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't think we do this... And because of that, we spend less money on the war on poverty. Well, you start off chapter four of your book by saying NASA is in the doldrums. And I think a lot of people sense that or understand that. But give us your take on that. Sure. NASA, you know, was founded in 1959. And, uh, you know, within a decade of its founding had done this extraordinary thing of the most complex and challenging project, technological project humans have ever done, which is going to the moon. That happened within the first decade. That's a pretty tough act to follow. And of course, NASA's budget was anomalously high, and it was a Cold War-driven uh, superpower rivalry that led to that. Uh, there is this feeling that NASA lost its way. Some part of that was hemorrhaging of talent. Many of the initial engineers looking around after Apollo at the plans that involved a space truck, which is what turned into the space shuttle in the 70s and 80s, just did not find that compelling. And they went to work in Silicon Valley. They went into new industries and were innovators there. Um, and so there was a graying of the agency at that time. There was also a lot of chopping and changing as different administrations changed their priorities and plans. There was a large investment, now probably topping $120 billion, in the International Space Station, which the sort of scientists, space scientists and visionaries just view as their international pork and not 
super exciting for them and corporate people who are supposed to go and do their experiments there haven't flocked to it. So it's not turned into a great scientific laboratory either. So the priorities seem to be wrong. And there was also this drawing back from the frontier, from the visionary stuff. Well, you've been to the moon and you haven't even been back there for over 40 years. What about the next step? Um, so the, the scale of the ambition has shrunk, some talent was lost, the budgets were suppressed and depressed, the politics started to get a little uh, ugly occasionally and was buffeting NASA, and, and that all amounted to the doldrums. What has it been like for you as a scientist to follow the privatization of space as it's blossomed over the last couple of decades? It's exciting, and it's a you know, and there's a little uh, nervousness uh, associated with that too, and and among scientists and engineers in general, because of course the motivation for private space enterprises are going to be quite different. I mean, let's be blunt, they're going to be sex motels, zero gravity sex motels at some point in orbit. Commercialized there's gonna, interest. There's going to be advertising, and astronomers will freak out at the thought of huge neon signs in Earth orbit. That's their personal nightmare. So, you know, the downsides of the commercialization of space are, are scary, um, but the opportunity presented by private enterprise, which is, of course, what drove the Internet two decades ago from being this small preserve of government agencies and a few universities to the Leviathan that our lives depend on, that all happened from the private sector. So I think it's an analogous transition that we're just seeing the beginning of. What would you say is the most exciting breakthrough that you've seen happen uh, on the privatized side of space? I think the most exciting thing, I mean, I'm not going to diss any of the particular efforts. I mean, Richard Branson has a good economic model um, for his, you know, tourism, his low Earth orbit. But to a to a true space jock, that's that's not very far up. You know, 100,000 kilometers, 62 miles is not, or 100 kilometers, 62 miles is not true space. Um, I think the person who's really rewriting the book is Elon Musk because he's gone back to what we would engineers call the rocket equation, which is that brutal physics we alluded to of why it's so hard to get payloads into space and why if you can't bring the cost down from this many thousands of dollars per kilo down to a thousand or less, you're never going to open this up. He's gone back with his engineers to try and look at that, how you can do it cheaper. And the key, of course, is reusability. The shuttle was only reusable in, in nominally. It was an incredibly expensive. The true cost of each shuttle mission, I think, turned out to be a half a billion dollars, which is crazy. So Musk, with his grasshopper and with his, you know, his next generation of rockets is trying to be fully reusable. He's, you know, working materials and technologies to, to, to bring that cost curve down. And yes, it's going to be hauling the freight at some level. I mean, there's a that's where the business, the sweet spot of the business model, of course, is telecommunications and spy satellites and all those things. So that's that's how you're going to float the boat. But then when you can do that, you can do all the other things. As soon as you can put huge payloads into Earth orbit, you've got your staging post for the moon and Mars and beyond and human exploration and, and so on. And, and so I think the things will all happen in parallel. Let's look ahead as you do in your book and what do you think might be the next golden age of space exploration? So I think the um, maybe not even the first wave, maybe not the current wave of uh, private space ventures. They may not all survive. Most of them probably won't. But that by the second wave, which I would take to be 10 years from now, I think it'll uh, blossom into uh, a moon base, a Mars base, 
uh, pretty much semi-permanent habitations in Earth orbit where all sorts of things are going on. Uh, I think we're within a decade, that same amount of time, of a space elevator, which would happen not on the Earth because we just don't have the materials right now, but on the Moon. And a space elevator on the moon, which is hard to build, but the, uh, it can be done with present-day materials, and it becomes an easier and cheaper way to, to get off out into the solar system and go other places as well. So I just imagine us sort of starting to percolate through the solar system with various activities, which will probably include mining asteroids. Uh, there's a lot of hype on that one, but people are going to try it. I mean, the, the buccaneers who first looked for gold and dug for oil, you know, they didn't worry too much about economic models. They just did it. And so the asteroid miners are going to be the same. So I think all of that will be starting to happen a decade from now. Chris Impey is the deputy head of astronomy at the University of Arizona. His book, Beyond, is published by Norton. Artist and writer Beth Surdit listens to ravens and paddles with alligators in wild and scenic places. But she also knows that true adventure can be found just outside your window. Stuart Udall wrote, Get to know the land and the messages it whispers to those willing to listen. I'm willing, but this is the city. No whispers here. The sound of cars and machinery is pretty constant, although never louder than the bird song. I heard noises on the patio, thought it was that large, brassy ground squirrel that had been hanging around, so I walked out to take a look. Whoa! Fierce! The Harris's hawk glared at me with cantaloupe-colored eyes. It's unsettling to be that close to an angry raptor. Hissed at me, as it flew to a eucalyptus tree to scold me for all the neighboring animals to hear. Big, intent, used to winning, I could tell. Lush, russet legs, substantial talons, and a beak that could snatch the cat away. The hawk returned the next afternoon, announcing as it flew overhead. The cat, no fool, crouched by the kitchen door, watching through the screen a baby Anna's hummingbird, old enough to flash crimson as it moved its head, young enough to be fluff, allowed me to stand near and watch it watch me. The next morning, Hawk flew in, perched on a telephone pole, dominating for only a moment before two mockingbirds gave him what for, screeching, scolding, pecking at his head and chasing him across the sky. His small but mighty escorts persisted, giving Hawk no chance to turn back. Within a week, where there had been one Harris's Hawk, there were now four large birds, and I had their attention. It was around 7.30 in the morning, 88 degrees on its way to 107, and I was standing alongside the road by my house, holding aloft what I assumed was theirs, a dove, its head barely attached. I'd heard loud, repetitive, plaintive calls, different from the announcing voices, then two voices, maybe more, back and forth like echoes in a canyon. I spotted a twosome in a leafy eucalyptus, a third called from a backlit branch down the road, 
and a fourth on a utility pole, a risky choice. I dangled the surprisingly heavy kill by its feet, then set it down and moved away into the shade and waited. But no one swooped in as the heat of the day clung to me. Harris's hawks hunt in a group, flushing out the prey into the talons of the others. The alpha female might mate with two males, and the offspring can stay around as long as three years. The four here are all large, but two often stay together, and the other two are somewhat smaller. Monsoon season has just started. Late in the day, the hawks stand in the steady rain, wings spread like dark angels. Lightning splits the sky as the raptors call to each other, their calls bouncing around the darkening night. Just above my neighbor's house, three hawks huddle like Shakespeare's witches amidst the metal coils and wires on top of a wood pole, intent on the kill the largest hawk is standing on and tearing apart. It must be something big, rabbit or ground squirrel. I see thick strands of guts hanging from the hawk's beak. The next day, with visions of electricity, water, and dead hawks in my head, I tracked down the number for the Raptor Protection Program at Tucson Electric Power. In the early morning after that, I stand under the power poles around my house as Jim from TEP points out the protective coverings that have resulted in the raptor population being larger in the city than outside it. He explains that the covering should keep the bird's wings, with an average span of 40 to 47 inches, from touching the power sources on either side, causing the bird to act as a conduit. But what about the water, I ask? And he tells me that the mixture of birds and water can still mean death. I've been in the city only a few months. My neighbors, who have been here for years, say, the animals seem to find you. I think not. I think I'm the intruder in animal territory. Through her illustrations and observations, Beth Surdit invites you to pay attention to the critters that crawl, fly, and skitter around your neighborhood. You can see her portrait of the hawk on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>